answer me this, somebody. Why is that boat still firing? Well, what's that cousin's name? Uh, hey, Chuck, he's pulling him right into us. Maybe he doesn't answer to Chuck. Call him Charles. Charles! Stop him! Stop him! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes... 49 and 50, which begin with Helen and Enola jumping onto the trimaran and end with the deacon and his men forced to abandon ship. We start off this week's episode with a bit of daring do as Helen and Enola are suspended at like 25, 20 feet above the trimaran as it passes through the opening gate into the open ocean. You call it Daring Do, and my memory of it was Daring Do, but I must admit that my memory of this moment was much exaggerated. The actual doing of it is Helen tells Enola to jump. I think she has to do it maybe twice. Mm -hmm. Enola jumps, lands safely in the net, followed closely by Helen, who lands safely in the net right next to her, and it's over. It's not that big a deal. But in my brain, I remembered it being a bigger deal. Well, from Enola's point of view, it is a big deal because, as I mentioned, you're jumping all the way down that huge height. Yes, and she's smaller and younger, Mm -hmm. and she has to do it purposefully. She has to jump forward off of a ledge, whereas Helen is already a couple feet closer She doesn't have to purposely jump. All she has to do is let go. It's a much easier physical action. So Enola certainly has the harder jump of the two. There's also the uncertainty of whether or not you're A, going to hit the net, if the net is going to be able to catch you, if the trimaran is still going to be there when you get to the bottom of your fall. There's these large metal spans that go between each (laughs) hull and you don't want to wait too long and accidentally hit one of those because you'll probably just bounce off into the water and then who knows what'll be broken yeah there's definitely a time pressure that could have been exploited for entertainment value it certainly didn't need to be especially not for runtime but a few seconds could have been added trying to time jumps and expressing a sense of time pressure. I think they timed this one really well as it's presented. That little bit of hesitation, the encouragement from Helen, go on, Enola, you can do it, I believe in you. Not that she said anything like that. It was a lot more simple. Just jump, look at me, jump, do it now. Yeah, the director chose not to spend time on this. And I am also okay with that. Where it lands in chopping the movie up by two minutes, 
it accentuates how small a moment it is and that it could have been bigger. But if you are watching this whole action sequence all together, then we've had plenty of Enola and Helen over the last few minutes. Mm -hmm. We don't need to spend 30 seconds, 45 seconds (laughs) on this jump sequence. Certainly not. So they jump safely into the boat rather uneventfully. And now this is a barrier. We are crossing from one section of the action sequence to another section of the action sequence. It feels good because we're refreshing it. Action sequences, you know, I'm not a big fan of action sequences. I find them kind of boring. This definitely helps. We've been on the atoll for quite some time. Well, now we're changing to the trimaran. Mm -hmm. And there's one passenger that we need to make sure that we don't leave behind. Oh, for sure. So important. It is such a coincidence that the tomato plant is floating right in the gate underneath the trimaran as it sails out. But the detail of the Mariner, first of all, operating the helm with both of his hands and both of his feet, like some sort of chimpanzee, but also being able to see the plant, throw himself over the side, grab the plant, and then toss it into the hull or below decks or whatever the proper phrasing is for that area. I'm okay with the fact that he saw it and went for it. That did not feel out of place to me. It's food. It's really, really important. Mm -hmm. Getting away is one thing. Being able to eat once you have gotten away (laughs) is an entirely other thing. What I'm concerned about is how he flung it below decks. It was rather violent. Seems a little haphazard, doesn't it? Yes, on that poor plant. (laughs) Especially for a plant that probably isn't that healthy to begin with. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily get all the nutrients and water that it really needs. But whatever dirt falls out of it, scoop it up, put it back in, give it some water and sunshine, and it'll probably be okay. He's lucky that when he picked it up out of the water, it didn't come out of the pot. And he doesn't hold on to the stem of the plant the entire time. When he rushes back to the helm, he's holding on to the edge of the pot. I do appreciate that transition. That He just grabbed the stem of it to get it high enough, probably for his other hand to grab the pot, because he's not dumb. He knows how to take care of plants. He's been taking care of that lime plant for who knows how long, so he knows. And by extension, he knows that he can throw it below decks, and it will be okay. It's not like it's going to fall out of a hole somewhere. Right. This is what little plant knowledge that I glean from my mother. She has a green thumb. I very much do not. But we have this tradition of when I go over to her house to visit on the way out, she will walk me out to my car and we will walk through the garden and she will talk me through the garden. Okay. That's something that she gets from her mother. Anywho, I know that there are some plants that when you transplant them, they transplant great. And they don't mind the trauma of being dug up and moved. Then there are other plants that do not. They throw a fit if you move them. And they need time to recover. And honestly, I don't know which of those two is a tomato plant. But I suspect that tomato plants transplant well. I cannot remember for the life of me, because I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, catching up while I'm playing video games in front of the television. But they're was talk today in one of the podcasts I was listening to about how 
hearty tomatoes are and that they can grow in just about anything. Uh, Yeah, I remember that conversation about broken pipes. Exactly. The conversation specifically mentioned that where you find broken sewage pipes, you can often find little tomato plants because the seeds pass through people. And once they find purchase somewhere, they will start to grow. Yeah. So that tells me that they are hardy, like you said, and that this tomato plant will be okay. Do you remember a while back, this was a fairly new thing that was being sold in the as-seen-on-TV section of different department stores, but an upside-down tomato planter? Vaguely, yes. The idea was it's a hanging bag, you put dirt in it, you put your seeds in it, and the tomatoes grow down through a hole in the bottom, and they're incredibly easy to grow. Yeah. They're so easy to grow, my dad was doing them. I also know that... People who start their own vegetable gardens, tomatoes tend to be one of their first because they are easy and they produce so much, just so many tomatoes. I used to work at a retail store and we had a little bit of lawn out the back of the store and the landlord allowed us to plant a vegetable garden. So all the employees took turns on our breaks, tending it, watering it and weeding it and whatnot. So in the kitchen, we had a bowl full of our fruits and vegetables. And it was all tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) It was so many tomatoes. I was on watering duty because I couldn't tell the difference between good plants and bad plants. And when I would weed, I'm the reason why we didn't have any green onions. Because I thought they were weeds. That's an important distinction to make when you're digging around in a garden. But I was great at watering. Let's cut over to the deacon. He is sitting on his throne at the back of the gas barge, and he is passing out cigarettes to the smokers that are around him, the smokers of all ages, the flag-waving kids and the men as well. They seem to be congratulating each other, celebrating maybe a bit prematurely because the battle is still technically happening. And the deacon sees the trimaran sailing out of the gate, And he says, did I say anybody could leave before the battle was over? The smokers are like, no, you didn't say that. And he says, well, do something. I hate sales. This scene is so wonderful. The line, I hate sales. What is is that? so great because he is a smoker. He's all about gasoline. (laughs) And sailboats don't need gasoline. It's like a Ford manufacturer saying, I hate electric cars. Or or I hate bicycles. Yeah. Or I hate those weird land parasailers that you see sometimes out on (laughs) the beach. I mean. Those things are pretty ridiculous looking. Yeah. It almost sounds like the deacon was somehow personally victimized by a sailboat. Oh, totally. Totally. I feel like there's a story. There actually, now that I think of it, is a story in the Raider script that I have from 1991 where the Mariner is chased by someone with an engine and their engine runs out of gas and the Mariner mocks them for it. (gasps) Ooh, I love it. And it's just a tiny little scene right there in the beginning of the screenplay, but it makes me think that perhaps the Deacon was chasing someone and they had sails and they got away because he ran out of gas. Oh, I like it. I like it. Also, a little detail about this scene is 
to the deacon's right, our left deacon's right, there is a young boy, I don't know, maybe seven, who is picking out a cigarette out of the box that the deacon is holding out. He pulls out a cigarette, looks at it, doesn't like it, puts it back in, and fishes for another one. Oh my gosh. That is great. Picky little kids. Yeah. I mean, all of the smokers are picky in their own way, the deacon especially, but that one of the smoker kids would pick out one, realize it's not to his liking, and then go fishing for another one. Come on. Right? Especially because these are not homemade cigarettes. These are from boxes of... We haven't gotten to figuring out what kind of cigarettes they are yet, if we ever get to see a brand on them. But these are out-of-packaging cigarettes. They're all exactly the same. Mm -hmm. They're all the same. That's the idea of getting manufactured cigarettes, is that they're not subject to the whims or randomness of hand-rolled cigarettes. Yeah. (laughs) And also, as just a wrap-up on this little cigarette scene, because the kid put the cigarette back in, it did not go in well. So when he does pull one out, the one he put back in comes out with it and falls to the ground. Now that I look at it, I think the one that he pulled out is also half bent in that it didn't come out straight and that it's technically broken. But it's hard to see because we so quickly cut to the smokers jumping on the jet skis to go attack the... Right. And the scene... The view of the cigarette scene is interrupted by some guy's big old head. Mm-hmm. So we don't really get a good look at the whole journey. I I don't know what it is about those shots where someone pops up in the middle of the screen, interrupting your view of everything you've just been looking at, but I get a kick out of it. It's inherently funny to me for some reason. Yeah. Reminds me of a post I saw on Reddit. It probably was not a new post. It's probably been seen, passed around plenty of times before but it's one of those kiss cams i think at a hockey game based on their attire it looked like a hockey game and kiss cam comes on guy gets down on one knee pulls out a box and right as the proposal is actually happening another fan jumps in front of the cam with a flag of his team and is like jumping and waving and he didn't know what he had done but he had completely blocked the proposal that was supposed to be on the kiss cam Mm mm-hmm Cutting back over to the Mariner, we see him looking at the gas barge, and then the camera pans over, and the Mariner sees the Hellfire gunboat. And it's one of those situations where the director has enough faith in the audience that they can put two and two together that he doesn't need to specifically spell out and have the Mariner say, huh, well, there's a big gas barge over there, and there's a gunboat over there. I bet I can do something clever with that. No, we have all of the information that the Mariner has, and we can see the gears turning in his head. And I love it when the movie doesn't have to hold your hand. It just lets you follow along with the process. Yeah, and the first time that I watched this minute isolated, without the context of the movie, I didn't know what was happening. I knew what the outcome was going to be, but I wasn't following along moment to moment what his idea was. So at first he's just maneuvering around and he's got this brief little interaction with Helen. That's a bit distracting, but you figure out what's happening once it starts to develop. If you're not on the same page with him to begin with, it's fine because they don't make it 
hard to follow what's happening as it starts to come together. It doesn't take that long to figure out that he is pulling the gunship and aiming for something else. Speaking of Helen. Yeah, I want to talk about this. The Mariner says, hey, can you steer? And then Helen fires back with, hey, can I trust you? Yeah, this was really bizarre. Like, he's just asking her to steer. Right. Like, now is not the time for that conversation. Like, he left you hanging off of a walkway one time. And it's a question that needs to be asked, but it's not an answer to, can you steer? It's not an appropriate retort. She should have just either said nothing or said, I'll figure it out. Because, no, she can't steer. She does not have prior knowledge of steering. So either she says no and doesn't do it, or she just does it, figures it out, which is what she does. Mm -hmm. And she does fine. She doesn't screw anything up, thank goodness. He probably would have thrown her overboard. It seems that this line is so out of place. It's so out of place. And it's distracting. It breaks the action. It's definitely a conversation that needs to happen later on in the movie. I look at this interaction, and I'm trying to ask myself, what does this tell us about Helen? What does her firing back with Can I Trust You tell us about Helen? her character, and it goes back to her having expectations about how things are supposed to work. If there's one thing we've seen with Helen over the course of this movie is that she has an idea of how the world is in her head, and she is, I don't want to say surprised when things turn out to not be that way, but she also seems maybe upset when things don't fit her worldview. I agree that she definitely has a certain set of expectations and she is aggressive about bringing the world back to her expectations when it veers off. And I think this is one of those times when she is trying to bring reality back to her expectations. Right, because she set him free and under her expectations... He is now going to do everything in his power to make sure that everyone is safe and escapes and whatnot. And Which wasn't the deal. She had this idea that he was going to ride up to the platform, help her up, and then they would be the ones to open the gate or something along those lines. And when he left her hanging, I can understand why she would be a bit mistrusting. And I think her... Firing back with this retort tells us a bit about her, more so than it's there to break up the action. Yeah. In my own head, the answer is that she asks the question because it's the biggest thing on her mind. It's the most important thing in her head at this moment. It's more important to her to know that she is in a safe place with this man than to know that they are safely escaped from the atoll. Mm-hmm. Even though those two go hand in hand, her priority is, is this guy the right answer to the atoll question? It's almost like she's looking at the big picture too much and not focusing in on the here and now. I think the here and now is very important. They're both important. Mm -hmm. But the here and now is that you need to get out of the atoll. Yeah. Worry about the next step. When it's time to worry about the next step. We can talk about trust issues when we're not dodging gunfire. Right. Because at this moment, you are on the same boat as him. 
this boat is the most important thing in his world. Therefore, for the moment, you are safe. Mm -hmm. When the threat to the boat is lessened, then you might need to worry and have that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But as long as you're with the boat and the boat is under attack, he is going to protect you. So the mariner, he grabs a rope. He sends Helen to the helm. He swings around to the front of the boat, pulls the covering off the harpoon, and fires it at the gunboat. And this harpoon is literal magic. There are barbs on the front of the harpoon, and you would think, okay, those barbs are going to go through the hull of the Hellfire gunboat and hook on in such a way that you could drag this boat around. But no, when you watch it, the very tip of the harpoon goes in. And the tip of this harpoon is just a cone. There's no barbs. It's not ridged in any way. It is a point. The point goes into the hull of the gunboat, and then the line goes taut, and the boat starts turning. There's no inherent reason why this should work other than black magic. And production-wise, they really ought to have made it go in so that the barbs were inside. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it was an effort thing because it looks like they really did shoot a harpoon spear into the side of a rustial ship. Mm -hmm. So it is what it is. The result they got is the result they got when they shot it into the thingy. So yeah, that's just going to have to work. Yep. But there is no reason that it should, especially since the gun barge is a heavier vessel than the trimaran. Absolutely. Now, the trimaran does have a decent amount of power to it because of the sails, but by sheer mass, it doesn't have as much pulling power. I can only assume that the Hellfire gunboat is a shallow-bottomed boat. Yeah. And that there's not a lot of resistance under the waves when it comes to turning that thing. Agreed. So the deacon very quickly realizes that something is afoot. He stands up on the barge and he asks if someone can tell him why the boat is still firing, which I think is a very important question because I can understand firing the big guns when it's just atollers inside. But the smokers, including the Nord, have started flooding into the atoll. There are friendlies behind the walls in the path of those bullets. The Hellfire gunboat, its part in this battle is over. And Chuck, who we find out in this clip, the gunner's name is Chuck, is laying it on heavy as far as gunfire is concerned. Yeah. Should Chuck or Charles... That's right. He may not go by Chuck. He may go by Charles. Should Charles be the one in charge of deciding when to start and stop firing his guns? (laughs) Because they're calling out his name. There's no way on earth that he's ever going to hear them. He is sitting in between two machine guns. He can't hear anything. He can't see anything. His loaders are the ones who need to stop loading. Like somebody, there must be somebody in charge on that ship. A captain, if you will. Someone in charge of a kill switch. Yes. That says, okay, it's time to start firing. Okay, it's time to stop firing. Okay, We've been harpooned and are being spun around. Stop firing. Yeah. Someone other than Chuck. Because, sure, Chuck has the triggers. And in a perfect world where everyone is super competent and everything 
goes exactly as planned, you can bank on having just one person. And maybe they've never run up against this situation before and just haven't thought to plan ahead for it. Because, yeah, everybody on the front of that gunboat is completely blind and deaf to what's going on. Yeah. The loaders are crouched down. They've got their eyes down at the floor. They've got hands over their ears because guns are loud as hell. Right, it's just as loud for them as it is for Charles. Chuck can't see a thing because his goggles are completely greased over and he's just got his hands down on the trigger. I don't even know what the protocol is for that. The only person who even starts to respond is the guy who's behind the helm. I mean, it's a steering wheel because the back of that gunboat is a truck, but he's the only one that realizes something's going on and he starts yelling to those guys. Between the yelling on the gas barge and the yelling on the gunboat, they should have realized that yelling is not going to solve the problem. No, and this isn't the first time they've used this gunboat. In the past, how do they stop the guy from firing? Mm-hmm. The problem of the boat being harpooned and spun around is not the only reason to stop firing. Like you said, they have taken the atoll. He's now firing on his own army. Mm-hmm. There is a line of jet skiers that are mown down. By this gunboat. Yeah. So this point in the battle happens every time. Apparently. So how did they stop it in the past? Oh my gosh. As frustrating as the situation with Charles is, I love how the deacon asks what the gunner's name is because it kind of feels like an ad lib. That the script didn't necessarily have him going off on this. Oh, what's his name? situation that feels like something Dennis Hopper would throw in and the guys playing the smokers on that barge just ran with it. It really does feel like an improv scene. A lot of the Deacon stuff does. Mostly it's Dennis Hopper's delivery, which Mm -hmm. is delightful and so normal, just kind of normal talk. It doesn't feel overly written. No. Like he has some more preachy segments in this movie which definitely feel practiced but here it seems very real and i love how the smokers are very quick to identify the gunner as chuck and then you've got this one smoker with the bucket hat who's cradling a cigarette in his fingers and he just says hey chuck and the deacon immediately identifies he's pulling us into it like there's a lot of action here it's happening all very quick everyone's very concerned but we still have the levity of them trying to call out Chuck. And then, oh, his line of maybe he doesn't answer to Chuck, call him Charles. <laughs> it's just, it's magic. It's so pure. Oh, as if that was the thing that was making right? him not stop. Like, you go by Rick. You yeah. answer to Rick. But if anybody calls you any variation of Richard... You'd at least turn your head. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if anybody calls out a name that ends with A, I will turn my head and look. As long as you hear that Ea yes. sound. I will pay attention. Was that me? You were calling me? No? Okay. <laughs> and I feel so bad for the driver of the gunboat. But at the same time, what's keeping him from getting out of the cab? of that truck and going over and whapping Charles on the head. Right. 
I suppose it's a time issue that he doesn't feel he has the time to get out and walk around and like smack him on the head or something. I really don't know. I'm just mystified that this is a problem. Maybe there's some sort of mechanical working of the boat where if he leaves that seat, things stop working and they won't get them working again. Well, it's hard to say. Even if that's true, the consequences that are about to happen outweigh whatever might happen to that gunboat. Yeah. Because <laughs> bad things are about to happen. Yeah. As I mentioned, there is a whole line of jet skiers that get mowed down and the bullets splash through the water towards the barge and Deacon takes one last puff of his cigarette and he says, adios, cousins, and they all abandon ship. Oh, the Deacon is so much fun. I love him so much. We have a knack for picking movies with great villains. Yeah. Like, he's toe cutter level fun. It makes me miss the toe cutter. He was certainly, out of all the Mad Max films, he was the one who was, like, a delight to watch. And the Deacon is very reminiscent of that. And as the bullets connect with the gas barge, it explodes in the most glorious fireball that mushrooms up into the sky. And the very last shot of this clip is the explosion, the bright orange on the amazingly vibrant blue sea underneath. And I know that there is a thing with digital projection where teal and orange are the most vibrant colors that you can put up on a screen, that sort of thing. So you see it all a lot. But I love it here because it is just so bright and colorful and I love it. In a movie where we don't get a lot of bright and colorful, this is a very welcome change. It was also a beautiful explosion. It also felt realistic. Mm -hmm. A lot of movie explosions are amplified by explosives to make them all fireball-y. But this was the explosion of a gas barge. Mm -hmm. This is what it should have looked like. Yeah, you don't have to add pots of gasoline to make it look more spectacular because the entire thing is a pot of gasoline. <laughs> so it doesn't feel so movie magic. It feels like this really is what it would have looked like. And it's a great image to end a week on. It is. So come back next week when we will get to see the Trimoran escape the atoll. The smokers will begin pillaging for supplies and Deacon will bemoan his lot in life. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 25. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.